0: Welcome to episode 42 of the RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Jessica Fujimoto, resident at Temple University and vice president of RSA, speaks with Dr. Robert Lamb, AAM Wellness and Burnout Prevention Committee Chair. Today, Drs. Fujimoto and Lam discuss dealing with the stress of a bad outcome.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the AAM RSA podcast. This is Jessica Fujimoto. I am one of the chief residents at Temple University and the RSA vice president. And here with me today, we're excited to have Dr. Lam, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and probably equally important today is the chair of the AAEM Wellness Committee. So welcome Dr. Lamb.
2: Thank you very much, thanks for having me.
1: Today we wanted to invite you here because you gave a talk on second victim syndrome and that's something that's pretty interesting to talk about. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in physician wellness?
2: Sure, about 10 years into clinical practice, I started working a different job and at this job there seemed to be an unlimited number of patients to be seen each and every shift and not only on top of this kind of crushing workload of patients there also seemed to be an unlimited number of tasks that I had to do as well that a lot of them weren't really related to taking care of patients but they nevertheless were all these hoops I had to jump through and I think that on top of me being very unhappy with the amount of workload that I had, I also noticed the patients were unhappy too. And and they were unhappy with the healthcare system that was failing to meet their needs and their expectations. And they had no problem letting me know as the humble representative of the system of their dissatisfaction. And so I think working for a deeply broken healthcare system can create a a deep sense of disengagement. When I stepped back and looked around me, I noticed that I wasn't the only one that seemed to be struggling. So I noticed some of the senior physicians in our group also seemed to be deeply burnt out. So they were almost a frail, kind of brittle version of the physician that I didn't want to become. And so that was kind of a wake-up call for me because I decided that I needed to devote uh, my efforts and some of my strengths towards fighting this epidemic of physician burnout that I was seeing in front of me. So that's why I really became involved with the physician well-being movement and um, have really tried to lend my voice towards this movement and the and the changes that we're making. So,
1: That's great. It's great to have a champion for this movement who's sort of been in it and now is finding ways for us to prevent it in younger generations. So again, you spoke at AAM this year about second victim syndrome, which I think is a very neat topic and I haven't seen people talk about a lot. So, I was wondering if you could explain to us what that syndrome is and what we can do about it.
2: Sure. Second victim syndrome is a term that was created by Dr. Albert Wu out of Johns Hopkins University. And use that term to describe the negative emotions, experiences, and trauma that can come to physicians and other providers that are involved in an unanticipated adverse patient event and patient related error.
1: It sounds like second victim syndrome can be pretty devastating. What are the ways in which it can affect one's career?
2: I think the most disturbing part of second victim syndrome is it has profound effects, um, both personally as well as professionally. And so we know that second victims, unfortunately, are more likely to leave the profession. Sometimes they uh, leave their specialty or the institution they work at, but they most often experience significant periods of self-doubt and isolation, withdrawal, disengagement, and burnout.
1: I was looking in the literature about second victim syndrome, and it seems that the way we had been dealing with it before, or at least the consequences of it, like you said, were a lot of isolation. Do you think that was because it was underrecognized?
2: I think it was likely under-recognized, in the same way that there was probably a lot of PTSD that happened to military soldiers that was unrecognized as well. And so we didn't quite know how to quantify that. But as we've continued to try to look at, a comprehensively, all the drivers of burnout for physicians, I think we're starting to see that this is becoming more and more of an issue. The other thing that seems to highlight it more is as well is that, unfortunately, we are seeing a rise in suicides of providers and nurses and physicians that we trace back and actually find that there's a second victim experience that's really one of the core reasons why the person had died by suicide.
1: At Temple, we do a wellness day every year where we have a regional conference and invite people to speak about different topics. And this year, we talked about second victim syndrome. And at the dinner we had with some of the speakers before, we were talking about the rise of suicides in New York City, which is nearby. And so it's interesting to hear that second victim syndrome is often behind these. I didn't know that. Do you think the way that we're dealing with second victim syndrome as a healthcare industry is evolving?
2: I think it is. Again, we're kind of looking at comprehensive ways to fight physician burnout, and so we're recognizing that the importance of having a peer-to-peer support program in place is really one of the key things to help treat this syndrome. It doesn't replace professional support but a respected peer can make all the difference in this situation. So having a respected peer come alongside you and just really talk to you and just help dispel some of the myths to help to break into the isolation that a second victim feels, help to dispel the myths that a second victim feels incompetent or, um, importantly, that they've lost the respect of their peers. And so a peer-to-peer support program is really one of the key things that an institution can do to make a difference to either mitigate or sometimes prevent some of the adverse outcomes of second victim syndrome.
1: It sounds like in addition to talking about second victim syndrome today and at conferences, this peer-to-peer program is something that residents can do in their program to help prevent this.
2: I would agree, absolutely. You know, anyone really can be trained to be a supporter of their peers. And it's not really purely science. It's kind of a mix of art and science. And it mainly just revolves a willingness to listen and provide non-judgmental support, uh, to check in with someone that you know may be struggling. And, and anyone, you know, a resident or a respected peer, can really be trained to do this type of support.
1: Where is it that we could go to look for this training? That's very interesting.
2: There's information on the John Hopkins Medicine website on peer-to-peer support programs, The University of Colorado has some information, too. Uh, One of the most comprehensive programs is through University of Missouri, and then the Center for Patient Safety also has resources and information for if you're interested in peer-to-peer support.
1: We'll have to check those out. Residency and, I imagine, practice groups are like a family, and so we want to look out for each other. What is it that we should be looking for exactly if we're worried about second victim syndrome in someone?
2: I think the time when a second victim is most vulnerable is when they start to feel isolated. And so as a work family, you may know that they are starting to withdraw or be disengaged. So particularly if you know that there has been an unanticipated adverse patient outcome and you start to see the physician or resident that's involved in that outcome start to withdraw, that's a good time to check in with that person and just say, "How are you?" It's just simply, "How are you?" And just kind of see where that that takes things. Because likely, uh, that person is starting to feel rather isolated. There is almost always inquiries that come after an adverse patient event. And they may come shortly after, or they may come over the course of years if it's in the field of medical malpractice. But kind of catching them early on when they're in that phase of the second victim experience is a good time to intervene.
1: You mentioned that questions come sort of in a large range of times after an adverse outcome? Is there a sort of incubation period that we should look for for second victim syndrome,
2: or is it really variable? So Dr. Scott actually outlined the normal experience of the second victim. And and just like other types of experiences, it doesn't necessarily follow longitudinally the, the course that she, she was documenting. Sometimes it goes back again and again. So for example, if the second victim experiences in the field of medical malpractice. Every time there are aspects of the inquiry related to mal- medical malpractice, the second victim has to re-experience the event, the pain and the doubt and the shame and the guilt every single time. And for med type cases, there are inquiries that happen every month over the course of years too. I think usually, for particular inquiries that are close to the actual event, uh, we'll see that progression through the experience rather rapidly until the resolution, when the actual inquiry comes and the second victim has to either kind of survive, just survive and learn from the incident, but also can start to thrive after it too as well, particularly if they're able to learn from it and actually become supporters for their colleagues, which also may become the next second victims.
1: What can we do as residents to help continue this cultural change to support second victims?
2: I think that two powerful things that you have are your voice and your stories, the ACA GME has really made a priority of making uh, well-being for residents an important part of a comprehensive program. And so you have your voice, and you can advocate for your program to incorporate recognizing the second victim experience and supporting them with peer-to-peer support. Secondly, you have your stories, too, as well. So many of you will likely will have experiences related to second victim, and Having the courage to share those experiences, I think, is really paramount to instituting change at your institution and change as, as a specialty organization. And lending your voice to your experiences and your stories, I think, is um, helpful for, one, allowing people to realize that they're not alone in that experience. And, and being vulnerable and letting yourself, uh, your story be told, allows other people to come forth and share their stories as well. And I think that's very helpful for people that are feeling isolated to start from a place of vulnerability where someone has shared their story and allows them to open up, too, and feel less isolated.
1: We talked a lot today about second victim syndrome, and we talked about different resources for residents to become peer-to-peer supporters. But I think also important is for us as residents to check in with our own wellness. Are there any tips or techniques that we can use to help when we're feeling a little burned out?
2: I think some of the most useful things that we're seeing in terms of building resiliency tend to center around, one, mindfulness, and two, storytelling and peer-to-peer support, sharing stories as a community. And so that's where I see some of the significant movements happening for innovative ways to help build resilience. So the problem with burnout is it's very complex. And what drives us to burnout uh, is going to vary a lot from person to person. And kind of the cure for that will vary based on what the specific drivers are. Mindfulness is a great way to introduce an emotional regulation type practice right at the place where you may feel significantly burnt out. Storytelling in community is a great way to debrief and de-stress with people that care about your well-being. And that's why we've tried to incorporate the airway storytelling sessions at AEM to try to really give people a venue to not only share the, the great parts of their job, uh, but to share the difficult parts of the job and, and just normalize some of the the difficult things that we feel and, and just really take that and tell our stories in the context that people understand the, the challenges we face as a specialty and challenges of our jobs too as well. So <clears throat> I think there's a lot that we can learn from resiliency education too. And so those are two things that I see that are happening right now that I think are particularly meaningful.
1: Those sound like good tips. Do you guys have anything in place at the University of Colorado at the residency program to help with burnout and resiliency?
2: So the University of Colorado actually has a resiliency council that continues to guide all the resiliency activities on campus. And they have the peer-to-peer support system, which I think is fantastic. They also have ongoing resiliency education on mindfulness lectures on grit, and a whole curriculum that they actually intervene with. And each residency program actually has their own champions for well-being that kind of helps provide education about burnout. As a department, we've actually started incorporating our own airway storytelling sessions, both to kind of give everyone a meaningful way to get together and connect as a community, but also to kind of normalize the difficult parts of our job. And what we found when we studied was actually 100% of people that attended these sessions felt better about their practice of emergency medicine and more connected as a department and a community.
1: That's neat. Yeah, having attended the airway event this year at AEM, I could see how that would be great bonding and support experience amongst residents. That's a really great idea. Thank you for being with us today. It was really interesting to hear you talk about second victim syndrome and burnout and resiliency. We're lucky to have you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website www.aemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.